Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the History Today podcast for April 2012. I'm Dean Nicholas, web manager of History Today. In this month's edition, who killed Alexander the Great? And then he reports the rival theory that Alexander had gotten ill after drinking a cup of wine at a banquet and crying out as if stabbed in the back with a sudden pain. James Rom weighs up new evidence about the mysterious death of the revered Macedonian ruler. Also in this edition, John Guy reassesses the relationship between Thomas Beckett and Henry II and, 30 years after the conflict broke out, Patrick Bishop recalls his experiences as a foreign correspondent with the British task force sent to reclaim the Falklands. First up, History Today editor Paul Lay speaks to James Rom about the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BC, the subject of the cover story in our April issue. I wonder if you could tell us, James, just for those who haven't read the article and are not familiar, what we actually do know for sure, for certain, about the circumstances of Alexander's death? Well, very little for certain, I'm afraid, uh, because the sources on Alexander all date from two or more centuries after his death. The contemporary sources have all perished, so we're, we're dealing with second-hand information, sometimes third-hand information, and those sources are at variance with each other. So right away, the, the evidence is very confusing and problematic from antiquity. And then in the modern world, the research that's been done has taken many different paths, but the two basic paths are those of uh, disease versus poison. And the scholars, the historians are very much divided on those two theories. Did he die of disease or was he poisoned? And why have we come to those two possibilities? Why, why have historians arrived at those two? Well, those are the two that are already being debated by the sources in the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD. The uh, account of Plutarch, for example, in Plutarch's Life of Alexander, discusses his death by illness and then attacks the rival theory that he was killed by poison. So already Plutarch was aware of these two possibilities and was at pains to support one over the other. And where did Plutarch stand? He was very much on the side of illness. Mm -hmm. He reports a fever that progressed over 10 or 11 days and finally led to a comatose state. And then he reports the rival theory that Alexander had gotten ill after drinking a cup of wine at a banquet, and crying out as if stabbed in the back with a sudden pain. And he says that that can't be true, and that it's invented by people who want to make the story as dramatic as possible. Now the there fil- you have it. You have the two rival theories combating each other right there in the 2nd century AD. 
And what's quite interesting, and it's a point that you make in the article, is that although um, Ollie the Stone's film, uh, his film biopic of Alexander, um, didn't uh, receive so many critical plaudits, um, it nevertheless did uh, base itself on some pretty cutting-edge scholarship and was aware of uh, the current debate on the historiography of uh, Alexander's death. Yes, that's right. Stone portrays the poisoning theory and stays fairly close to the sources as to how the poisoning occurred and who was responsible. He makes a coterie of officers responsible, all of them close to the king in his last days, and even gives them a motive, which is the same motive that some modern scholars would give them, uh, namely that they didn't want to press on to a new campaign. Alexander was determined to keep pressing onward with new conquests, and his generals simply didn't want to follow him any further. And who were these generals? Who were these key figures who, uh, who would have been the, the culprits of those who suspected there was poisoning? Well, Ptolemy was one of the principals. Ptolemy, who later ended up uh, king of Egypt and started the Ptolemaic dynasty there. And Stone, of course, makes Ptolemy the narrator of his film and has Ptolemy directly take responsibility for Alexander's death at the end of the movie, in the final sequence. Then there were also uh, men like Cassander, who was not one of the top generals, had been in Europe during all of Alexander's conquests, but came to Babylon and met with Alexander just before his death. And that circumstance led a lot of people to suspect that he had brought poison with him from Europe and poisoned Alexander on behalf of his father, Antipater. That was the principal uh, theory about who was responsible for the poisoning right from antiquity onward. When we're dealing with Alexander, he, he's one of the most mythologized figures in all of history. So we have this lack of real sources there and lost in the distant past, as well as this accretion of centuries of mythology there. It makes it particularly difficult to see through that, I would imagine, for historians. Have they been helped in any way by advances in science that have affected history in any sense? It's possible they have. It's, it's too soon to tell because a lot of the research is very, very recent. And in fact, the most plausible theory in my mind is one that is, is currently being developed and published by a toxicologist in New Zealand who has matched up Alexander's reported symptoms with those of hellebore poisoning. And that's fascinating because hellebore was in fact a medicinal drug in the ancient world, but an overdose of it could be fatal, could produce the kind of coma that Alexander fell into, according to the sources. So hellebore could have been administered as a medicine, but in a too large a dose, or perhaps Alexander himself stepped up the dose in order to cure himself, and inadvertently poisoned himself. So there you have a new theory, which is neither poisoning nor illness, but something sort of in between. And what, could you present us with a picture of what that court was like? Again, it's one of these things that's surrounded by myth. We've seen Hollywood's versions of Alexander's life time and time again. But what was the nature of the court there? I believe it was a 
cadre of loyal and highly devoted officers, since I don't believe ultimately that they poisoned him, I, I believe that they were devoted to his cause and believers in his, his vision of a, a world empire stretching from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean, basically, and saw themselves as the heirs or the, the closest in power to the king and therefore would benefit hugely from his administration of that empire. And you would they had everything to gain from his survival and much to lose from his death. And this idea of this, of this great empire from the Atlantic into Central Asia, they, were very, they seemed to be very aware that they were building this. It wasn't just something that accrued. There was a sense of mission about it in some way. Is that correct? I think so. Again, the sources are somewhat at variance, but to my reading, Alexander had very firm plans for who was going to rule the empire, how it was going to be administered, and uh, especially how he was going to fuse European and Asian cultures so as to create a kind of world state. That was his, uh, his agenda that only his closest followers firmly supported. The rest of the army and, and the middle rank officers had grave doubts about it. And he was very certain about this, that it could be achieved, and of course it ultimately was achieved. Yes, well, the, the empire stayed intact only for a few years and then fragmented into pieces, uh, a story that's told in my book, Ghost on the Throne. But uh, in some sense, it did maintain the kind of global world's culture, mixed culture that Alexander had envisioned, in that European monarchies were blended, uh, often by intermarriage, with uh, local populations. Was there any precedent for what Alexander had done, or what his, what his ultimate achievement was? No, none whatsoever. This was the first time that Europe and Asia had been held together in a single political entity. They had always been at odds before his time, so it was really a revolutionary move to try to bridge the gap between the continents. And was it something that um, was dependent chiefly on the force of personality of Alexander, who's obviously an extraordinary figure? Uh, and how much did he owe to the organization of the Macedonian kingdom and the relationships with others? Well, the Macedonians had been friends to the Persian kingdom for a couple of centuries before Alexander's time. In fact, they had more or less been allies of the Persians at the time when the Persians invaded Greece in 480 BC. So they were familiar with the idea of a large aggregate empire combining many peoples, uh, centralized but with subdivisions uh, in many different parts of Asia. They had seen all that in action and, and they'd had Persians at their own court. So in some ways they stepped into the footsteps of the Achaemenids, the Persian rulers, who had carved out the path for uh, a worldwide empire. Why did it fall apart so spectacularly and so quickly? Well, that's the, the story that Ghost on the Throne tries to tell. It's, it's a very complicated story, uh, but to put it in a nutshell, Alexander died without a successor or any plan for succession. He died at 32 at a time when he was healthy and, and at the peak of his power, 
it didn't seem that he had any reason to, to need a successor, and he hadn't yet appointed one or engendered one. He did have a, a, actually a, a baby in utero at the time that he died, but of course much too young to, to hold power after he, he was born. And his only other male relative was a mental invalid, his half-brother. So uh, the two of them together were made joint kings, neither one of them able to rule, and uh, a board of regents was set up to administer the empire in their name, and things started to come apart very quickly. And so to come back to this ultimate question of, of what was the cause of Alexander's death, I mean, you come down on the side of disease, largely, um, in terms of the evidence. Um, are we likely to discover much more? Are we ever likely to have a certain answer to it, do you think? I don't think so. And in fact, uh, the two foremost experts in the field in recent decades both ultimately gave up on trying to answer the question of what killed Alexander. They both said it was not not knowable with uh, uh, all all the sophisticated historical inquiry that's been done. So I think it's ultimately a matter for speculation, but the probability lies strongly on the side of disease. Well, thank you, James. It's a fascinating article, and it's the cover story of April's History Today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Next, John Guy discusses the life of Thomas Beckett, the troublesome priest of Henry II. He talks to Paul Lay. What I wanted to ask then at first, uh, John, is um, why you returned to that period in a way, um, because we do know you as a Tudor historian, that's how you've become established. Um, what prompted you to go there? What prompted me was I'd actually done this as a student and for a while while I was a research fellow in Cambridge, I'd actually taught it. Uh, and um, although I've taken a break from it for you know, 30 odd, odd years, I, it's always been a gleam in my eye to actually unpick the whole of the Beckett story and just go back to the original sources. But what in particular prompted me to do it now was finishing the book uh, Daughter's Love and the relationship of, of Moore and his daughter. I, I realised how important Beckett was as a saint in London you know, in the um, early 16th century, how particularly central he was in the life of not just Thomas More but also More's original patron, Cardinal Morton. And of course the resonances with Henry II and Beckett's story and the confrontation between More obviously wasn't an archbishop, he wasn't even ordained, but there, there, are, there are resonances here and I just wanted to ex explore this. Yeah. But the thing is that whereas of course More was a brilliant um, intellectual and scholar all the way through, Beckett was a late developer, and in fact, he really only got to—he got only got his foot on the ladder through nepotism. Uh, he had a posh education. He was sent to a, um, a good uh, London grammar school. Uh, he went to the University of Paris. He didn't finish the course, as far as we we can tell. He was an apprentice. He was a clerk to a banker, London banker. That didn't work for him. Uh, and um, really, through a family connection, he entered Archbishop Theobald's household. Now, it was there that, in fact, he was able to rise up the ladder. And something just clicked, I think, in, with, 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 with Theobald. Uh, Beckett was always smart. He was, I think he was a bit lazy. Uh, he was an underachiever, but he had great potential. He was uh, a very good talker. He'd had a stammer in, uh, in his youth. And I, I think in, in the way that 
people overcome a stammer through uh, measured a measured way of speaking he was he became extremely articulate and, and he was fleet of foot and of course Theobald was a plodder when it came to um, you know speeches and um, you know public events uh, Theobald although he ended up a kingmaker really wanted to be a pastoral uh, figure of course the civil war of Stephen's reign you know, threw him into the limelight in a big way and Beckett became, in a nutshell, his fixer and right-hand man. That was how he first came to meet Henry. Excellent. I wonder if you could say something about that period, just to set that context of, of, of Beckett's life. Essentially, uh, Henry I intended his daughter Matilda to succeed to the throne, but it's rather like with Mary Tudor, you know, or even Elizabeth, the whole business of you know, the resistance of barons or nobles to, to rule by a woman cuts in. Stephen gets the throne and essentially, you know, there's a struggle for the throne that essentially, you know, lasts 19 or, or odd years. It doesn't cut in right away, but essentially there's this, this, this hiatus. Uh, now, in the course of that, one of the big clashes that um, Theobald has with Stephen is when Stephen wants to crown his eldest son Eustace as his successor and Theobald is not prepared to do that. Beckett goes to Rome to actually get this forbidden by the Pope. So he gets experience there. Uh, but then Theobald Eustace dies unexpectedly, suddenly. Uh, but um, Theobald effectively sees... he can't, it, Stephen behaves in such a way, and his barons behave such a way, pillaging the church and sort of stealing its assets, that, that Theobald comes to take the view that... That Stephen is a tyrant, and in fact, in the process, he politicises the archbishopric. Uh, very few people knew. No, I didn't know when I started this book that at the height of the crisis, Theobald was chased down the Thames by twelve angry knights, uh, you know, in a different boat, you know, with their swords drawn. We know about this from the Beck Abbey Chronicle, uh, and could easily actually have been assassinated, not in his own cathedral, but he could certainly have been assassinated just as Beck Beckett, just just as Beck Beckett 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 was. So these were really tense moments. At the very heart of the Beckett story is his relationship with Henry II. Now what we have here is a very different telling from we talked about the one the Jean Henry film, uh, the, the play which, which became the film, and the general myth of this very close relationship, this deep friendship at first between uh, between Henry II and Beckett, and you blow that out the water. Well I certainly raised doubts about it, and I raised doubts about it one of the things you have to know is that, of course, there are wonderful sources for the Beckett story. I mean, Beckett left um, something like 230 letters, although these are really from the period, almost apart from 10 when he was Archbishop. But, of course, there are also, you know, this sort of dozen or so early, early biographies of Beckett written by people who had known him in whole or in part, in some cases not really very well. But uh, some of them, like William Fitzstephen or Herbert of Bosham, you know, who'd been his clerks pretty much all the way through, had known him, or in particular John of Salisbury, you know, his biggest friend, but also his most candid critic. You know, these people had known him all the way, or nearly all the way through. I mean, John, since he really, since a couple of, three years after he went into Theobald's service. Uh, and... Um, but all the same, there's a certain amount of um, crossover between all these lives. There was some copying, and Fitzstephen's is one of the first. And in a nutshell, the story that Beckett and Henry were the sort of friends that we see, in, for example, in that movie with Richard Burton, um, essentially comes out of um, William Fitzstephen, who says that 
you know, they were almost like blood brothers. They were great friends. They were, uh, they were, they worked together. They played together. They hunted together. You know, they ate together. You know, Henry would come to Beckett's Hall in the evening. He'd ride his horse into the hall. He'd want to vault over the tables and come and sit with Beckett. Actually, what's really interesting is that for all of that, for all of those generalizations, Fitzstephen doesn't really come up with any specific anecdote. There's no, there's no, there isn't a single anecdote of how this friendship actually worked in practice. In fact, the two stories that he tells uh, are um, one in particular where um, Henry and uh, Beckett are riding out one day and, um, you know, Beckett's got this wonderful new cloak, expensive new cloak, and, and they see a, Beggett, a beggar and Henry says, oh, wouldn't it be great to give this, you know, beggar something, you know, why don't we give him a, a cloak? And, and, and Beckett says, oh, yeah, it's a good idea, it's a worthy deed of charity, not thinking that Henry means his cloak. And in fact, Henry absolutely humiliates uh, Beckett and a fight, almost a fight begins. Uh, and what this story shows actually is that Henry's using all the techniques of, of, of psychology of a strong king to assert his power and authority over a middle-class man who is not his social equal. So the relationship wasn't quite as exceptional as we, as we think it is in terms of the being equals. You know, there was no doubt about who was in control there. He was always in Absolutely. And, and of course, this is a theme that cuts in. What Arnold says about this social distance and, and Henry's, if you like, sort of aristocratic snobbiness. And I mean, you know, I mean, we, we, we recognise that a little bit in the 21st century, but I mean, in the 12th century, I mean, this was absolutely pr predominant. After things go wrong... Henry always says, you're an upstart, you're the son of one of my villains, I'm one of my peasants, you know, I raised you from nothing, you know, dot, 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 why won't you do what I want? This is his constant refrain. Uh, and, you know, Beckett starts, to, and Beckett actually is incredibly proud of his ancestry. There's one, in one of his letters he says, you know, my parents in their way were honourable and, you know, and hardworking, and, and I'm actually proud of them. You know, St Peter was, a, you know, I mean, was a, the apostles were fishermen. You know, I mean, he's proud of his ancestry in, in his way. I also think that Londoners, it's the same for Thomas More. London is almost, not quite, but there are elements in the 12th century as there are, and far more in the 16th century, of a self-governing city. There are aspects of that. And London is a meritocracy in a way that the rest of England is, 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 is not. But even in the, you know, I mean, you know, I was showing this book that Henry never actually said, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? Um, that was actually, it wasn't even Lord Littleton, as you know, academics, um, writers thought it was. Um, electronic searching aids come to your rescue here and you can actually track it back a few years before that. But the fact is that, you know, there are three or four versions of what Henry actually said. Uh, and, you know, it runs on roughly along, you know, basically, who are these useless drones who clutter up you know, um, my court, none of whom will basically, you know, deal with this um, difficult... Uh, and the word upstart, right. you know, is 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 is, is 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 actually not in all the versions, but it's basically in um, you know in several of these versions, uh, and that's that's how it ended. And what's your judgment, having been immersed in Beckett now? What's your judgment of him as a man and as a historical figure? I think Beckett has been traduced. Actually, I mean, Beckett was far from perfect. Uh, but the idea that, you know, he was simply an actor saint, that he was a pretender, that he was a man on the make, that he was too shrill, that he was a hypocrite and, and, all, and, and, and all of this, um, this can all be undermined. And, and in fact, actually, you can see how this sort of line, 
the Brits have been particularly tough on Beckett, and this is for two reasons. You would expect, once Henry VIII had declared him retrospectively to be a traitor and, you know, and dismantled the shrine, you would expect the whole Reformation polemic to be anti-Beckett. But, but of course, another thing that I discovered when I was actually doing a Tudor piece of work, quite, um, quite, quite, quite separately, but of course, naturally, it's in, it's in the book, uh, is that um, at the time of the break with Rome, and at the time of the executions of Maud Fisher, Pope Paul III uh, actually um, says that, well, Bishop Fisher is a proper saint because he dies for the faith, he dies for, for the substance, whereas, you know, he, he, he's a proper saint, unlike Thomas Beckett, who just basically died for a sort of a wrangle over the positions of the Church of, of Canterbury. That was John Guy on the life of Thomas Beckett. Finally this month, Patrick Bishop recalls his time with the British task force sent to reclaim the Falkland Islands 30 years ago this month. He talks to Paul Lay. Patrick, uh, you established yourself, I think, at first uh, covering the riots of 1981 as a journalist and then also Northern Ireland. And I wondered how Northern Ireland, covering Northern Ireland and the riots, helped in some sense to what was to come in the Falkland Islands in '82. Um, it didn't in the slightest, I have to say. I can't think of anything that actually prepared me. But it's an interesting question, nonetheless, because you'd have thought, covering Northern Ireland, which I'd done quite a lot of by that stage, you would have come into contact with the army a lot and know the army's ways, maybe even know some of the people that were on the, on the um, task force. But that wasn't the case because the army had, at that point, withdrawn into its shell because of the way it was being portrayed. You know, I mean, even right across the the newspaper media, certainly, uh, including newspapers like the Times, you know, they were, they were regarded with great suspicion as sort of an occup occupying force. So the, the uh, Sinn Féin propaganda machine had, had done a pretty good job. So they didn't, really didn't have any contact with journalists. So I, that was the first time I'd really come to close quarters with them. And it was an, an interesting and revelatory experience. I was a good uh, kind of, you know, conventional lefty working for the Observer and expected these, the army to be a combination of um, you know, toffee-nosed officers um, ordering around lumpen proles, you know, who had no other choice but to, to join up. And it you know, became apparent very quickly that wasn't the case, that, that, that it was much more complicated and that much more interesting than that, that soldiers were far more thoughtful people than I gave them credit for. And uh, I think that was a, a learning curve for all the journalists on the Canberra. I went down on the Canberra with um, 42 Commando, 40 Commando Royal Marines and um, <coughs> two battalions of the Parachute Regiment. Um, so these are pretty elite groups you're with on this, uh, on this. You discovered, I mean, when had you discovered you were going to the Falklands? Well, it was all very, very quick because the, the crisis, as people will recall, was amazingly sudden and so the journalistic arrangements were pretty sudden as well I immediately volunteered as I heard about it I thought oh, they're sending troops I want to go so I volunteered the MOD for once actually uh, managed to move with some uh, you know alacrity and so you were kind of once you got your name down that, that was it the people subsequently bigger names far bigger names than myself then tried to bigfoot me as the uh, as the phrase was but, you know, it was down there on the MOD's uh, list. I was on the, on the list and that was it. And there was nothing we could do about it. And this was for the Observer? This was for the Observer, yeah. And did you have any training at all? What, what, did you get any sense from the MOD of what was going to happen or what you might be involved with? Or were you just left on your own to a certain extent? 
Well, there was a um, no. On the, there was a lot of time on the way down because it, the voyage was stop and start. We spent a lot of time sailing around around Ascension Island um, because the diplomacy was going on. So that this fleet was actually moving slowly southwards, and it was a, a, a kind of threat as well as a, a kind of diplomatic threat as well as being a, an actual military threat. And um, so we had loads of time to get fit, learn all the kind of basic you know, military law about first aid, you know, how to deal with a sucking chest wound, all delivered with great relish, as you can imagine, by these uh, military instructors dealing with a load of lily-livered axe. Um, but by the end, we were, yeah, we were firing weapons and uh, yeah, we, were, we were in pretty good uh, shape by the time we got there. So you were there, when you say firing weapons, you were actually taking on a military role in some sense? Well, no, we were, we were just doing, t you know, test firing with an SLR rifle off the back of the ship at the target, so they'd chuck out a, some old tin, you know, tin cans in the kitchen and they'd blast away at them, which was great fun. But there was a kind of, you know, we were very aware of our, trying to protect our independent status, and so, um, you know, there's a debate about should we be wearing uniform because we were official war correspondents were issued with uniform of giving and given an honorary rank of captain and you know a little passport and everything so you were very official and uh, so there's a kind of earnest debate about should we be letting the Argentinians know that we are not part of the um, you know, invasion force we are journalists and so for a while there was a thought that we should sort of um, try and get, get our hands on some sort of colorful anoraks that would show that we were not soldiers, but when we relayed this to the military, they sort of fell about laughing, saying, well, you're very welcome to do that if you want, you know, to tuck the snipers on the Argentinians, so we'll be very, very grateful to have the target illuminated in this way, you know, so that, that one went out of the window fairly rapidly, as indeed did any real sense of impartiality. I mean, I remember, you know, again, we were rather earnestly saying, you know, we've got to try and retain perspective and so forth and you know we're not uh, cheerleaders for the Mrs Thatcher and, and the army um, and Navy but um, once you come under fire uh, you, you you know you, you know which side you're on and uh, it pretty much stays like that so that was on day one in San Carlos water when the Argentinian Air Force were launching these incredibly brave raids very low level into the water and um, dropping bombs all around you and um, you know, we, we found ourselves cheering as, as one sort of was hit by a missile and going down. So after that, it was rather hard to maintain the notion that you could keep any distance from this. When did when you were on, you were making your way there um, to the Falklands, when did, on Canberra, did you get a sudden sense that, oh, this is war? Was there a sudden announcement that, yes, you know, this is going to be combat and... What were your thoughts then, thinking, oh God, you know, this is for real, we're not, uh, we're not involved in a diplomatic uh, manoeuvre anymore? Yeah, it was quite late in the day because there was so much toing and froing at the UN, and it wasn't really till we were kind of quite deep in the South Atlantic that you suddenly thought, we're not turning around, you know, there's no turning around now. And it's quite thrilling, actually, it has to be said, you realise you're part of this enormous enterprise, you know, the, this, it really was an epic. You look around you, you see all these, you know, grey hulls batting into these enormous South Atlantic waves, albatrosses skimming over. And, you know, you're, you're kind of 
glad you're part of it because uh, it's going to be a, a huge adventure. Um, the death part, you're surrounded by other people who, who've got similar anxieties and, and fears and so you kind of mutually, somehow without saying very much, people kind of mutually support each other. Um, and of course, you know, the thing that sustains anyone in those circumstances, you don't want to, to be seen to let yourself down. So that, that sort of tends to uh, help you deal with your, your concerns. And what were your relationships with the actual troops like? Uh, they were very good. I mean, it was like anything really. You, you, you kind of chum up with a couple of people who were kind of kindred spirits. And, you know, they're very good. The, the military people are very good at looking after each other and also looking after outsiders. If they, take a, if they think you're OK, you know, then you can utterly rely on them. Um, I, don't, I can't think of any uh, kind of, you know, political arguments or anything that any of the journalists have with them. Basically, both sides found each other quite fascinating. You know, they were as interested in us as we were them because we belonged to a very... The way we did things was completely alien uh, and counterintuitive to them, so they are, you know, they're in a non-competitive, cooperative world, and you know, hacks are the polar opposite of that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, they they thought what we did was quite fun, and we we thought what they did was fun. So yeah, there was there was kind of you know mutual respect, I think, and a lot of affection. And you talk um, too as well about the fact that, that they were very thoughtful. You've mentioned that already, that these were not people who were the, the, the stereotypes that perhaps civilians consider them to be. Um, how did that become apparent, that you sort of thought that? You talk about the officers quite a lot, and in fact you, you met Colonel H. Jones. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were, you know, they were quite sceptical about the uh, value of the, of the exercise in terms of the justice of it, if you like. You know, they, they, didn't, they, they really didn't. Care too much about the rights and wrongs of the Falkland Islanders' claims. It didn't have any animosity, particularly towards the Argentinians. You know, the fact that it was a dictatorship and so forth was considered to be well. You know, it's, it's quite convenient that it's a dictatorship because it, it means that you know our cause is therefore enhanced. But um, I don't think I ever heard anyone talk passionately about the uh, you know the justice of the of the, uh, of the cause. There were also a certain amount of scepticism about um, about Mrs. Thatcher. You know, she was very much an unknown quantity then. Uh, they weren't so crass as to think, you know, this is a woman sending us into war. Uh, I never heard any of that kind of talk. But you know, again, it was a, it was the business of there hadn't been any interesting soldiering for a long time. You know, Northern Ireland had settled down into this, you know, pretty dreary and and quite dangerous policing work essentially. And here you are with this. Again, I use the word epic, but you know this, this incredible potential feat of arms. So all their training uh, is going to be put to the test. They themselves are going to be put to the test. Their skill and their courage. So you know there's a tremendous sort of buoyancy. Um, everyone was amazingly cheerful. The only people who weren't very cheerful were the MOD civilian minders, who I think had had really uh, not imagined that it was going to go all the way. And so as as uh, combat approached, I think. Um, without being rude, too rude about them. There were, there were different uh, levels of enthusiasm or lack of enthusiasm, but I think uh, certainly there were quite a lot of, um, of worried looks and long faces uh, among the MOD types. And what path did you follow across the Falklands? What, what, what was the route that, that you followed during the campaign? Uh, well, I landed on, on D-Day uh, in San Carlos Water, so basically that's at the extreme end of East Falkland, 
Um, and so it's about as far as everyone landed there, but it's about as far as way as you can get from Port Stanley, the ultimate objective. And then thereafter, uh, I, it was either a combination of walking and the uh, helicopter trips. Uh, some people yomped all the way from San Carlos to Teal Inlet, which is about a kind of 30 mile across. It doesn't sound very much 30 miles, but it's up and down over scree, bog, you know, it's absolutely knackering thing to do. Uh, the longest yomp I did was only about you know, five or six miles. And who did you do that with? That was with the Marines. Right. But I went up to Mount Kent in a helicopter by night. Uh, they did a night sort of assault and I went up with, a, with them on that. Uh, so yeah, most of the time you didn't, you know, you basically stayed put, you would take, you know, you got somewhere and then you stayed put. So it was a series of hops, but it was the living conditions were pretty grim because they, they didn't, the army didn't take tents. Now this is something I never got to the bottom of. And the closest I got to any kind of explanation was that it was kind of considered to be a bit sissy to be a tent. <laughs> so you were in this, uh, you were meant to be able to live off the land by making your own bivy, which meant digging a hole and stretching your poncho over it and sticking some rocks around the outside. And some of these guys were very good and made very elaborate um, bivvies, but, you know, us civilians, but by no means as adept um, at it. But the other thing was that the uh, water table in the Falklands is very, very high. So you've only got to stick your entrenching tool into the peat and immediately it fills up with water. So, you know, my enduring memory of it all has just been wet the whole time. And you know, you're with elite regiments here, Royal Marine Commandos, parachute regiment, you know, the, the, the top of the tree, so far as the Navy and the Army go. Did you find it a struggle to keep up with them physically? Well, I was a, you know, I was a young man then, so it wasn't that difficult. It wasn't, it really wasn't. You carry, yeah, I mean, we were carrying quite a lot of uh, weight with us, but you were... None, there, was a, there was this one epic yomp that a couple of journalists went on, but most of the time the, the distances were not that great. So yeah, you could, I don't think uh, I ever had any real difficulty. A couple of people, a couple of journalists got went down with you know terrible colds and things, and just when I mean, that was your real, the real danger was was getting some sort of illness. So it's more discomfort than anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and did it change your mind about soldiers having seen them in action? And I mean, what did you think of them? Really? Yeah, I think it actually had a, a probably changed my political outlook quite dramatically for a couple of reasons. One was the um, the families of the soldiers when we were leaving Southampton. Uh, sorry, it was uh, on the Canberra. So I just got terribly confused about whether it was Southampton. No, it's Portsmouth. We left from Portsmouth. The uh, QE two that left from Southampton. Um, some of the families turned up. At the dockside, and they were, you know, they just seemed to be a, a kind of part of Britain that had been uh, brushed aside or was in the shadows or whatever. But they were Not very part ordinary. of the metropolitan world. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, so they, they, you know, they were kind of almost an embarrassment uh, because they were so straightforward and, uh, you know, jolly and and kind of patriotic. And this kind of thing was very, very much not uh, the fashion at the time. Uh, and the combination of their kind of, you know, uncomplicated cheerfulness and the good nature and, you know, native intelligence of the military types kind of made me rethink some of my, you know, as, a, as you say, metropolitan sort of left of centre perceptions, which, of course, on the Observer, it was the, you know, the, the kind of religion was... Uh, 
very much maybe the pool left. Um, and so thereafter, I, became, I think I became more sceptical and more questioning of those sort of um, inevitable preconceptions uh, without actually, it didn't actually tip me into being a kind of, you know, saturator or anything, but it did make you, it's a good lesson in just taking nothing for granted. And, and how did the campaign end for you? Um, I was on, I was with the commander, 40 commando on uh, below Mount Harriet. I was at a first aid station, the uh, first aid post while they were assaulting the hill and so I was there you know for the attack overnight and then we just you know we, we yomped in from um, from the top of Mount Harriet. And by that point the, the Argentinians had surrendered? Yeah well I was up on the Mount Harriet when the the first white flag started appearing in Stanley so you could actually see it from Mount Harriet it's only a couple of miles away five or six miles away and uh, there was a bit of uncertainty but then it was pretty you know it was clear that it had happened so then we started we moved forward in fact, we got helicoptered forward a bit and then yomped the last bit. And, um, you know, the great question of who was first into Port Stanley, I mean, there's no doubt it was Max Hastings, but <laughs> it was Max Hastings by about sort of 10 minutes or something. And so it wasn't this. So that caused a certain amount of um, aggro, it has to be said. Because you know, uh, it was a typical of the way he'd run the whole campaign, that he, he was incredibly smart, um, really thought it out very, very carefully and wrote terrific stuff. So, you know, he was undoubtedly, he preserved his laurels. But um, having sort of thwarted uh, the competition at, at virtually every level, every day, it was just it was too much for, for some of the uh, some of the colleagues. Well, thank you, Patrick, for those insights. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Patrick Bishop. Thank, thank you. you very much, Paul. That's all for this month. You can read James Rom's piece on Alexander the Great, John Guy's essay on Thomas Beckett, and Patrick Bishop's recollections of the Falklands War in the April edition of History Today, which is out now. You can also leave a comment or listen to previous editions by visiting www.historytoday.com forward slash podcast.